Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today on Conversations from Here, I speak with stellar musician, prolific producer, wide-ranging composer, Musicians Institute teacher and alum of the English Beat, Rick Torres. We discuss his early life growing up in a musical family in Hawaii, coming to the mainland for schooling, being a working musician and impresario in 1990s Los Angeles, how the music business has changed since the early days, following in Chuck Berry's footsteps on tour, becoming an honorary whaler, and having a lifelong love affair with the Rolling Stones. It's quite a talk and quite a ride. Lots of great stories. Hope you enjoy. Here's me and Rick. All right, here we go. Hello there's, there. There's, there's my... There's my... <laughs> Melting clock on the wall. Your melting clock. So Ooh. hello there, dear Rick Torres. It is yes, really and then there's there's my big giant. What is that? That's a, a peanut bug. He is showing us a a. Uh, but you know what? They're not going to see the visuals though. Oh, it, that is. This is a large painting slash lithograph of a peanut bug that was done by a guitar player named Will Sargent from a band called Echo and the Bunnymen. Wow, I didn't I know he was it. an artist. He is, and he's also a guitar player. And and is that an actual insect? Is that, it's a real thing? Or is that his? It's a, or a fantasy art movie? piece that depicts an actual insect, I not see. to scale. Wow. Apparently these are twice the size. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. maybe, half of, maybe a quarter of the size. Right, I exactly. remember seeing Echo and the Bunnymen once when I was in college and they came to our campus to Arizona State University and gave a free concert. Mm. It was, it, this would have been- That's cool. Like 19, Early 80s. 1990 actually. Oh, wow, free in 1990? Yeah. Yeah, cool. they, it was, I don't know why we didn't ask, we just went. Sure, I mean, but, you know what, campuses, have budgets for concerts in order to keep the students involved in the school. 
uh, school spirit budgets and whatnot. And a lot of times they'll book bands like Echo and the Bunnymen. I think that's probably what happened. Uh -huh, sure. Yeah. So, so hi, I'm, I'm just so happy. To Aloha. So great. Um, so I did want to, you know, as, as you know, I, we, we go back in the way back machine and kind of yeah. go back to origins. And I know that you are an, you're an Islander on both sides because you've got Puerto Rico on one side, you got Hawaii on the other. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Um, Maui mostly. That must have been. Lahaina, Kihei, Wailuku, Kahului. Yeah. And then, and then did you, was music a thing in your family when you were growing up? Oh yeah, everybody played music. Yeah. Yeah, everybody. My, oh, my dad plays flute, congas, piano, and tuba. And he's very good at guitar as well. He's very good. Huh? And then my mother played guitar. She was very fond of folk music. So she played all the Joan Baez you could stand. Uh-huh and let's see my uncles all played instruments uh, i believe my grandmother plays piano um everybody in my family plays yeah it's just a thing was it was it your mom's side the hawaii the hawaii yeah mom's or? mom's the hawaiian and uh, she's she's a transplanted uh maryland slash new yorker mm -hmm. they, they uh, founded a city called cumberland maryland uh her family and we're one of the guys and one of my great, great, great uncles, 12 times removed is uh, one of the 12 immortal judges that told England, hey, we ain't gonna pay for your tax on your tea. Ah, yeah, the, what was it? The tea in the harbor. <laughs> right? So yeah, the re repudiation was uh, the 12 immortal judges. One of them was mine, uh, my uncle. What was his wow. name? Judge David Lynn. Judge David Lynn. And how did your mom? Friends with George Washington and wow. Ben Franklin and all those guys. Yeah. The founding dads. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a technically, I'm a son of the revolution, but those people don't want me because my last name's Torres. Right, 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 right. They're like, no, you're not like us. I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah, why, why not? Because oh, you like empanadas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that may have been okay that may have been i like yeah i like fish and poi too was, you know whatever but how, <laughs> how did your mom how did your mom end up in uh in the islands my oh gosh my great-grandfather went over there back in the uh daguerreotype tintype days mm -hmm. and wrote a beautiful book of poetry about hawaii and my grandfather uh grew up there and he had um he started a, psycho a psychology medical institute. Mm -hmm. And then he was also the head of psychology at Queens Hospital. Um, so he was a doctor there and during World War II and whatnot, and well before. Mm -hmm. And then my mom just, you know, she went on vacation to, uh, when she, was, she went to University of Wisconsin and then on vacation in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. She met my father, who was very dashing, and offered her some mango sorbet, and the rest is history. <laughs> he had her at mango sorbet. You had her, yeah, he had her at mango sorbet. My mom was a beautiful young redhead with large breast disease <laughs> and freckles, and, then, and he and my dad was smitten immediately. Uh, so. and, and how many siblings do you have? Like... Full siblings or like nebulous siblings? Well, any any of them. How many? I have okay. I have one full blood sister. 
Um, I have at least one sister from a previous marriage from my father's uh, who I guess he was married, like he got a girl pregnant when he was like 15 or something like that. And they're Catholic. So right. they married them and then divorced them. So the kid would have a soul and go to heaven. I see. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so yeah, there's that. And then he's been teasing me the last few years. He was around saying that I had another brother or sister somewhere. Mm, okay. So, you know, there's a, there's a pack of us, but I don't know half of them. And they're probably musically oriented is my guess. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. My sister and my nieces all are, you know, they're better musicians than I'll ever be. That's for sure. Awesome. So then you, uh, did, when did you get to the mainland and, and, and I came here in 1980, um, moved to Laguna Niguel and went to Danny Hills high school. And then we moved from there, uh, to Huntington beach. And I lived on 22nd street in Huntington beach. And I went to uh, Huntington Beach High School and graduated from there. And then I went to Orange Coast College and Golden West College and Musicians Institute. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the whole time I was there from basically my second year at Huntington, I started doing music, much to the chagrin of my theater teacher who was really mad. Because he was like, you, well, you're great at the theater. You should be a theater you know, actor. I'm like, mm. Ah, interesting. So that's how you yeah. started. That was your first passion was... Uh, yeah, because I was, I was act, I've been acting since I was a kid in Hawaii. Uh, in Lahaina, I was in a play called On Borrowed Time. I was 10, 10 years old, 9 or 10 years old. And uh, at the Lahaina prison... The old whalers prison in Lahaina. It's a big banyan tree in it. They put a big stage and they do parties there, weddings. It's really cute. Um, it's all made out of coral and it's a pretty amazing. Uh, but yeah, I got newspaper articles got my name wrong. They call me Ricky Rodriguez, not me. <laughs> like, no, it's not me. I was mad. Like my first press and I got my name wrong. Uh, but yeah, I've been doing, you know, sort of performance stuff since then. I just didn't want to do acting because I didn't want to do other people's words and other people's ideas. And mm -hmm. when I started doing music, basically in high school, um, like seriously, um, I was like, you know, I like this a lot better. So. And were you writing, were you, were you doing covers of other people's stuff? Oh, hell no, no. We, well, I think the first talent show we did like Goo Goo Muck and like a couple other things, but um, maybe Stepping Stone by the Monkees. But uh, after that, it was all originals. So, we, you know, it's just band after band after band, mm -hmm. playing with all the Orange County bands. Mm -hmm. I did take ukulele class in seventh grade though, which is why I play string guitar. I wanted to, I originally wanted to be a drummer, brought home a snare drum from summer school. Like neighbors not having it. We lived right on the beach, on the ocean, right? And like in this nice condo complex and everybody was like, no drummers on the third floor. No, not gonna happen. Oh, okay. And so I brought it back the next day and I said, okay, I'm not gonna be a drummer. And I brought back a trumpet. And for a day I was like, <laughs> and of course the neighbors are like, you know, that's not so much, not gonna work for us either. Uh, they were very, very happy when I, the, next, the day after that I brought back um, a ukulele and uh, an auto harp. 
Bing, bing, bing. Mm, both both of them much quieter. Much quieter instruments, and you know, much better for the karma of the the complex. <laughs> and, then, and then you and then you really developed into because you're really pri primarily a guitar player, right? Because I know you play a bunch of stuff, but yeah, yeah, uh, I was a singer forever and ever and ever, and I was also you know because I was writing music, I was playing guitar and. Right when I finished high school, I went to Musicians Institute after junior college, and uh, I wanted to. I had all this music in my head. I was like, "How do I? Like, I really want to get this out, and my skills are very, very limited." And somebody said, "Well, you know, everybody who's really serious about their career, there's a lot of people that go to this school here, and uh, you'll meet other people who are really serious about their music." And I'm like, "Oh, sounds perfect." And uh, I think my my dad had sold a house years and years ago that my mom had kept the money for for college and so she gave she paid my tuition it was a one-year school musicians institute i think tuition was like six thousand dollars or something it was cheap for the whole year mm -hmm. paid it up front i got full cal grants and pell grants and uh which covered the whole tuition which basically then when the money was coming in from my my grants that came straight to me because i'd already prepaid it um but they never came in on time so i ended up homeless couple times <laughs> which but is hard to be in school music. and homeless yeah but music yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> living squatted in the you know where the house of blues on sunset boulevard is mm -hmm. yeah the before that was open there it used to be an old restaurant that was closed and there was a room in the bottom floor that had a door that i found that was open i squatted there for two weeks wow yeah until like until my check came in and i got another apartment wow yeah. So, so then you so then you graduate from the Musicians Institute where you teach now. I, yeah, I'm a teacher there now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess you can go back to your old school. You can go back <laughs> to your old school. Uh, Ricky didn't lose that number. No. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and, and what do you teach? What I, I mean, I was doing the whole time I was there. I was also doing nightclub promoting as like that was my job. So making phone calls for a guy who had you know, used to have a limousine company, had a big stack full, this is before the internet, had a big stack of um, of clients with their phone numbers, a phone list, right? So I go through the phone list and I call people and I invite them down to this party. And I ended up ma making friends with all these people at the labels, Columbia, Sony, well, you name it, all these DJs, all the people in the industry. I started doing my own shows. I started doing bigger shows. I said, no, I don't want to do pay to play. And I left that place and I got my own place and I started doing those shows and started doing bigger concerts and then went met with Jerry Buss. And we're going to get the forum and we're doing like I was really blowing up. And uh, about that point, we started a club in Santa Monica called Bump at the Pink in Santa Monica. I think Jason Bentley and Bruno Guez had a night there. They had Thursday nights and uh, uh, What's the other guy's name? Oh, Raymond Roker had another night there from Herb Magazine. And I was like, dude, that's the place to have the club because those where all the cool kids are. So I, I said, well, we got to do a club there. And I had a friend named McEwen Patterson. He's like, well, what do we do? And I'm like looking online, like, what's cool right now in London? I'm like, oh, Speed Garage. Okay, we have a Speed Garage club. And so, because I was, you know, already rave promoter dude or whatever. Um, so we did this big Speed Garage club and that was cool. Uh, lots of fun, you know. Before that was Magic Wednesdays. I did a lot of work with Magic Wednesdays. I helped start that place too. And so, that, you know, was involved with the electronic music scene from way, way back. Just loved it. And uh, 
while I was there, a friend of mine introduced me to Perry Farrell. And I started hanging out with Perry Farrell and his clan down on the boulevard down there. He had a little enclave. And then things just started taking off. Like at the whole, we had this band over Soul 7. We we're making demos and one of our demos came back. And then Bruno Guez, one of the guys from the club, on the other night, he had a radio show and a friend of mine uh, it hooked me up with Bruno named Joey Krebs. He's the LA Phantom who does the, the Rage Against the Machine album cover. So mm -hmm. we used to go out there and I used to stand like this and he'd spray painting all over LA, right? It's not just me, like a lot of people, but uh, that's, and that's, you know, that's pretty cool. And we got to meet Perry Farrell again from that, from spray painting and stuff. And he let me play at Lollapalooza in 94. Mm. We, want, we roll up to the gate and Perry's like, uh, Joey's like, hey, Perry, can we, can we play? He's like, yeah, man, you can play on the poetry stage. And so we got to play on the poetry stage. And we played uh, between the Watts Prophets and Ray Manzarek on the poetry stage. And in the audience were Melissa Oftimer and Eric Erlinson and um, his girlfriend, um, Drew Barrymore. She was so cute. Oh my God, you don't even know. She had these cute little like Japanese things like all over her nails before anybody else did. And uh, she was just very sweet. Um, and Courtney Love and the whole whole crew. So you mean- uh, It was just cool, you know, like the first day we played, we had, we were called Story of O at that point. And this is before Jerry or Amin or Kiran were in the band. It was just me and this guy, Joey, and another guy named David Achone. And me and Joey go there the, you know, to, to do the show. And the first day, David shows up. And then after our gig, he drops acid and disappears. And then we don't see him again. Like, we didn't see him again for a week. But we had a gig the next day at Lollapalooza. And, like, he just didn't show up. So I had to fire him and play all his parts and my parts at Lollapalooza in front of the people from Hole and Melissa Oftimer and all those people, you know. No pressure. Yeah, you know, and Rayman's Eric from the doors. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> but I'm you up there with my guitar, and my flute, and my keyboard, and with a match. I have a matchbook cover. And one of the things is I looped a, a drum loop up in one of the sampler things, right? So, but it wouldn't, you had to actually hold the key down for it to loop. So I put a matchbook in there so it would loop so I could play do my conga thing and yeah it was, I looked really awkward and you but didn't have to sprout an extra set of arms in order to do this so I kind of did <laughs> I, yeah I, you know I kind of did I, I must have done something right because I'm still doing it so that's good anyway so you, so you went from uh from a music student to imp impresario to then professional musician right because this Lollapalooza thing led yeah. to other things well, well yeah that was just that was the entree into it but because of Bruno and that club on in Santa Monica, Bruno knew who I was and he knew what I, my music was. And so he called me up and said, hey, I'm sending your demo to my boss. I happen to program all the music for Chris Blackwell's hotels in Jamaica and Miami. And I just got a job as an uh, r person at his label. And you're the first band I want to show with him. I'm like, wow. Okay, and we were just about getting ready to sign a deal with Virgin Records too. And and uh, I bust into the office at the lawyer's office, I'm like, don't sign anything. 
they're, they're sitting there with pens out ready to go and i'm like don't sign it no and and uh it was pretty much exactly that and, and they go why i'm out because and i told them about chris and uh, they said okay well we'll wait and we'll see what happens well we got a call back they said we like it they set up a showcase they said we like it sent out chris blackwell i had a meeting with chris blackwell and the guy who owns gateway computers he's got a big smile guy right and we sat around we smoked pot and talked about music and what all the band members could do they were supposed to be at that meeting and they didn't show up at bruno's house uh, but that's fine because I sold I sold them on anyway. Jerry and her whole family are amazing filmmakers, and I told them all about that. And I told them what, what kind of music we're coming from, and you know what our influences are, and what everybody's strengths are. And he he said, "Sit, you got you got it." So we got the deal. Wow! And what year was this? Now is this like later nineties? Oh, this is, 90s this or is mid nineties. Yeah, late nineties, ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. And then what was- I your, think the record came out in 2000. And, and then what was your, your connection to the English beat? How did you get hooked in? That was really, really fun. There was a girl I was friends with who I produced some music with. What was it? Was her name Holiday? I don't know, something fruity. Holiday or Fruit Basket or I don't know what it was. Anyways, she had a manager, right? And I was dealing with her and her manager for something. And apparently her manager also managed Dave Wakeling. And he told her that Dave needed a place to audition drummers because he needed a, he need, or a, yeah, he needed, no, he I needed a place to rehearse because he needed to audition guitar players or drummers or something. Cause well, his drummer couldn't play and they needed a new drummer. And then of course his guitar player, who is an amazing dude and really nice guy, his wife had a baby. And so he had to stay home and take care of the baby because she's the one with a real job. I see. So he couldn't go and do any of the away shows. He could do only in-town shows. So Dave, so she tells Dave and Dave goes, hey, you know, Mr. Torres, could I come and use your place for a rehearsal? I'm like, yeah, okay. So he comes up and shows up and I'm like, hey, how's it going? He goes, I was just in Hawaii, Simon Potts' house. And we were listening to your record. I'm like, Simon Potts? Simon Potts was the president of Capitol Records. And he owns the Hanalei Surfboard House. Um, he's kind of a cool dude. And he, they were listening to my record. Wow. Yeah. Like Dave Wakeling of the English Beat and the president of Capitol Records are in Hanalei listening to my record. That's cool. Anyway, we became really good friends and we wrote songs right off the bat. I'm like, that's it. Boom, boom, boom. We wrote like two or three songs together. Um, and we just got on a house of fire. And I started doing the away shows bang 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 learning all the stuff it was all pretty easy i mean ska music yeah the, it's all about the vibe and and really being precision with the bass player and locking in with everybody and the spaces in between the music are as more important if not more so than virtuosity you know like so it was it wasn't too hard for me but it was fun and and uh right then supreme beings of leisure broke up and, so that was that was 2000 to go back, the Supreme Beings of Leisure were your your kind of electronica kind of band, right? Right. The um, they were originally called Oversoul. Se oh, originally Storivo. Then that oh, became okay. Oversoul Seven. Then Oversoul Seven, we had a problem with some dude who had had the name Oversoul, and he was really like, "I'm gonna sue you." Like, why? You you have one like instrumental track on a B movie. Come on, you know. Ah, 
yes but we we said okay whatever and i think uh kiran and ashley were watching like mutual of omaha's wild kingdom or something oh yeah and they were like lions are the supreme beings of leisure or something like that and ashley goes hey that's a really cool band name thanks and, to, uh, thanks to marlon perkins of of wild kingdom right exactly it was something like that right and and uh and and Kiran goes, oh, I'll do the dishes for it or something. <laughs> so we became supreme beings of leisure because we couldn't use oversell stuff. I still have our first demo. We got a song called 1972 where we sampled Richard Nixon. We've got uh, a thing called Into Soho. I had a girlfriend from Belgium call me on the phone and do her vocals over the phone in Belgian French. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, so I still have that original demo. And then we, we were doing a, a, some stuff with um, these rappers named Cannon and Terrell, me and Kiran, uh, who had, was my roommate. Uh, and uh, the, um, the rappers were cool. They were singing over the top of the grooves and stuff we were coming up with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just coming up with like, just, you know, I guess backpack rap for whatever. We we didn't know what it was called because I was taking samples. I was slowing them down. I was putting guitar over them. I was getting you know, really tripping them out. There was no such thing as trip hop yet. Not really. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't called that. We thought it was called acid jazz. We didn't know what it was called. And uh, we start doing this stuff. And, and uh, because I had to kick out that other keyboard player, we got a new keyboard player named Ramin, who was friends with Kiran friends with their family, like both their dads are dentists or something. And so they, you know, of they were, course. yeah, they were like, you know, 12th grade birthday party friends. And, and, uh, so, and then of course, David's girlfriend uh, uh, was, or our ex-girlfriend, a girl he was dating was, was um, we'd introduced her to the producer that I, my, that you know, Morty's cousin, Jason oh, okay. introduced me right. to that producer. Morty's cousin was my roommate for 10 years, yeah. So uh, David Hauser was his name. So we introduced, we, we hooked Jerry up with David Hauser. And uh, and then the new keyboard player, Ramin, goes, hey, you know, we've, we've got this, um, he was a delivery guy at the time. I think he was a courier. And he was delivering stuff for movie studios because, you know, they didn't have file transfer back then. So he was actually moving hard drives from place to place in his car. Uh, so he was delivering stuff and he got a chance to deliver music to a James Bond movie. And he's like, let's put our music in there. And so we, we had this girl, Cherry, sing over the top of this rap stuff that we were doing with these rappers and created that first Oversoul 7 demo. So which- Assigned which to Moonshine. Which James Bond film was this? Do you remember? I don't know. I don't know what it was. But did it end you. up? Did anything? It was. Yeah, okay, I'll tell you what year it was, though. It was 19, 1994. Okay. Pierce Brosnan, maybe. Maybe it was no, under his. 94 through ni then, then 94, 96, 98. So somewhere around there. So like late 90s. Mm -hmm. did, it, so. did it make it into the film? No. No, no, no. I was going to say. Fate is really weird because Chris Blackwell owns the island that Ian Fleming wrote all those James Bond books on. 
he owns Goldeneye. That's where he lives. Oh, wow. So we didn't get in the James Bond movie, but we got in to like the pantheon of, of uh, the James Bond experience via Chris Blackwell, which was really interesting. Wow. You, did, so you, did you actually get to go there? No, he offered when, when we were having trouble with the band and the band was breaking up. He's like, you know, you could come down to my place, you know, and, and you know, you could work it out. I'll be the bad guy, he says. And I'm like, all right, the dude's rad. I love, I love him. And, uh, and, you know, just didn't work out. I wanted to go. Kiran wanted to go. I don't think, I think Jerry had just had a baby not too long ago. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, not gonna do it. Had that. to be mom. Had to be yeah. mom. Yeah. Well, and actually, thanks to another baby being born, you did get to tour with the English Beat. So that was that was great. That's true. Yay! We love babies. And then, um, uh, so we mentioned Morty Coyle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little bit ago. So how did you get involved with the Fockers? With the Fockers. Of 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 Cantor's Kibitz Room. Okay, I have to go back in time in the Wayback Machine to well i used to go and watch them right back in 94 in that, like when they were doing that thing with the wallflowers and whatnot mm -hmm. and uh, i was literally a wallflower just a fly on the wall watching go and you know just one of the guys used to come in and have some matzo ball soup and watch people dance on the tables it was nuts you don't even know it was crazy like you never saw anything as crazy as it was back then. I just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the whole place. Um, it was off the hook. Anyway, so several years later, I am talking to a friend of mine from high school, no less, who now has a radio show. And she goes, oh, do you know Rami Jaffe? And I'm like, yeah, I know Rami. Rami's the guy from Canners. He's the, the, the guy with, with the wallflowers. And she goes, yeah. She goes, well, Rami's going to start the, the kibitz room up again. I said, oh, that's great. And it was Monday. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go down there because I lived right around the corner. So I walked down there to Canners just the day before. Like, it was going to be on Tuesday nights, and I knew that. So I'm like, I'm just going to go scope the place out. And I get there, and Rami's there. He's actually there, and we started talking, and he and and he goes, "What do you do?" And I go, "I, I go, I play lead guitar for the English Beat." He goes, "Oh, you're one of us then. Come on, let's go." And and so I made a commitment to be there every week and to supply the the, the guitars and the guitar amps and you know whatever it is I could bring. I brought my own drums. I brought the drums for ever and ever and uh, bass amp and whatever you know my my. I just really loved what they did. I remember how cool the vibe was when they were playing with M Morty singing and everything. And I already had this connection with Morty because of my roommate. They're like, Morty's like my cousin. Like him and his family, his mom is like my aunt. Like they're like family. And his brother, you know, not his brother, his, his, his uh, cousin David, like hired me as a mobile DJ to like play at parties and stuff and like kept me alive when I was living in my car. So yeah, those guys are like family to me. Um, but yeah, and that's, uh, that's how we got back into canners again. And, you know, then I met JJ and, you know, realized that JJ was the guy from Cole rehearsal and, you know, met some of the other guys and just 
went from there. I mean, I knew, I remember Gersh. I knew Gersh from somewhere. I forget where I knew Gersh from. Uh, but Gersh wasn't there for very long. He came in and, and ducked out after a minute. Uh, and then yeah. Rami left when he became a Foo Fighter, right? Uh, well, he was in the Wallflowers for a long time, but he, they weren't touring. Jake mm. doesn't need the money, you know. Mm. He's already got the you know, all that Bob Dylan money. Right, he's right. heir to. Uh, and the Wallflowers did great, so he's got his own money. So he doesn't really need to tour all that much. And poor Rami's got, you know, he's got his mortgage he's got to take care of. He's got a daughter he's got to take care of. So he's like, so it was a godsend for him to get that gig with the Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. And those guys are great too. Chris Shiflett's awesome. He's a sweetie. We played some shows with those with those cats, with Chris and with Rami, with the Ooks of Hazard by Ukulele Band. Oh yeah, your ukulele band. I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. Ooks of Hazard. Ooks of Hazard, right? That's a fun gig. Have you ever, you ever think that because you were playing cover songs on a ukulele that you do two tours of England? It's amazing. N never, right? No, it's like no, that's not going to happen. That's not a real thing. I'm like, you were yeah. Bringing, you were we played on Brian Jones' grave. I mean, Jesus, you know. You brought the warmth of Hawaii to the 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 chilly the chilly islands of the of the of, of the northern Atlantic. well you know if you go there in the spring and summer it's not chilly at all it's like narnia right. no it's literally true. like narnia right like there. there's little fawns there's elves there's small yeah. people running around playing weird instruments i have seen them in the summertime people it's dressed true. like birds flapping around <laughs> more they call them morris dancers Yes, yeah, like, strange things happening. Phew, yeah. Those English people in the countryside, man, they're far out. <laughs> you go out to the West Country in Cornwall and Devon, woo, they're dancing. Oh, yeah, the, oh. the Cornwallish, the Cornwall people, they've got that great accent, the Cornwall the, thing. The, the piratey West Country. Yes, exactly. They're keeping apples around things. We'll be eating pasties, yeah, Cornish pasties. <laughs> and we went surfing. We went surfing by uh, uh, in Cornwall. Oh, where, so what, what town in Cornwall? I spent some time there. Oh. Or were you on the north, on the north of the peninsula or the south of the peninsula? I don't remember. What was it called? Paradise Cove? No. I forget what it was called. I'll send you pictures. I have pictures. Somewhere around St. Ives is my guess. Somewhere I've got St. pictures Ives. of me in a wetsuit. So <laughs> you get, you get the, the joy of seeing me in a, in a wetsuit. Fantastic. So yeah. then, so then, um, at some point, you start. When do you start E Records? When you start your own production? E Records was right at the tail end, right after Supreme Beings of Leisure was big. We get back from tour, and we had kind of been working with it for a bit, but we started the paperwork in about 1998. Okay, okay, so, so this is a lot earlier than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we started all the paperwork in '98, but like. It was originally myself, Ramin, and Kiran. Mm -hmm. And then Ramin ducked out when the band split in half. And then me and Kiran, we split our, went our separate ways after we did that bittersweet record. And so, but like there were five tracks on that record that I helped write that he never credited before, like mm. including the title track, The Mating Game, which I did a huge amount of work on and melodies and chord progressions, whole nine yards. Anyway, so I ended up getting the name of the record company in exchange for not suing his ass for uh, stealing my music 
and uh-huh. calling it his own. Okay. So <laughs> that's how I got e-records all by fair, myself. All clear. fair in love and war. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so. And then, so then you're writing, you're, you're writing music, you're, you're, you're composing, you're arranging, you're doing stuff for film and TV and commercials and all yeah. that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. We've been doing it the whole time. Chris Blackwell, okay, this goes back to Chris. This is why we're doing this kind of stuff nowadays. Chris, um, he likes to, he's an old school businessman. He likes to own all the parts of the business, right? So when we got our record deal, he wanted our publishing too, but we'd already signed a publishing deal with Ryko, which was mm. David Bowie's publisher. And I was like, yeah, it's David Bowie's yeah. publisher, yeah. Right? David I'm, Bowie. I'm Bowie. David Bowie guy. I'm a Bowie head. I'm definitely a Bowie head. And um, so I was all stoked on Ryko and uh, Chris wanted it. So he bought Ryko. The whole company. As you do. <laughs> Like you do for Chris Blackwell. I want right. it. I'm going to buy it. He bought the whole company so that he could own our publishing. Then, because he was the boss now, said, okay, all of you that work over at Ryko, you have to make this music, make enough money to pay me back for the publishing advance that I gave them. Mm-hmm. So he... They went because now their boss was telling them that's what their job was. They went off and they licensed the hell out of Supreme Beings of Leisure all over the place. And that's why that for like a, like a two, two, three year period, we were like on all every details magazine and, you know, the World Music Awards 2020, mm-hmm. like all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Just so all around everywhere. the world. Yeah. The, right. The, uh, French government book does give us a hundred thousand dollars to do the bullet train commercial for the TGV in France. Like just commercials with Harrison Ford for Lancia automobiles, commercials for Thunderbird, commercials for just about everything. Like TV shows, movies, uh, the Animatrix with the Wachowski sisters. They were when they were the Wachowski brothers. Um, What else do we do? Oh, Igby goes down. Uh, Just all kinds of fun stuff. And, and uh, so these were all the places that they licensed our music to. We had to start dealing with these music supervisors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kept in touch with a lot of them. And then on top, and there, then our name is all like, all, we became name recognition. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine starts his own music supervision company. And they call me up and say, hey, you got anything? And I'm like, yeah. And so I give them stuff and they get the gig. and. I give them some more stuff and pretty soon their company grows and the two offices and pretty soon both offices are calling me and then they split again and there's four offices and then there's four offices calling me. And so pretty soon I had those, that pretty steady group of work mm-hmm. and then all the other stuff from the, the other stuff outside was coming in piecemeal too. So for a while there, it was like rain, raining work. Yeah. Nowadays, not so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a call for a TV commercial yesterday uh, and they didn't even want me to write anything. They're like, just look in your catalog, see if you got anything. I'm like, right, okay. Because, you know, yeah, like, of course I have something, but, you know, I mean, I love those guys, but they're they they they're getting spoiled by the, uh, by the uh, music library people. Mm. They're basically ripping off musicians and taking the money that musicians should normally be making. And, right. And, you know, right. So could you say to them in exchange for being providing a service to music supervisors who are too lazy to, to actually listen to music. Mm. So there you go. 
So could you say to them, oh, gee, I don't have anything, but I can write you something. I did, but they, they, they don't pay to write anymore. Oh. They're not paying. Like, they haven't for a couple of years now. I used to get $350 a track just to demo my stuff because what people would do was they'd be like, well, you know, just show us your ideas. And we'll see if we like them or not, right? So I'd make, and I was like really ambitious. I'm like, okay, make a bunch of stuff, send it to them, show it to them. They'd be like, no, you know, we don't like any of this stuff. And then, bang, turn around. Oh, they won a Clio award. Oh, let me hear the commercial. Oh, it's so my music your... done by somebody else. Oh, no, 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 you know. So they take that your idea over and over and over again. Somebody else. Over and over and over again. Yeah. So that's why I was like, nope, you want to hear my ideas? 350 bucks. And I'll write something and it'll be good and it'll be better than anything you have. <laughs> and that'll, that'll pay for the cost of the demo if I need to get somebody else to come in and sing something. If I need another outside musician to come and play like flugelhorn or harp or something. Um, and it'll keep the lights on, you know, and it'll pay for all the people that are ripping me off. Mm -hmm. So, so the music industry has changed so dramatically, hugely, it's yeah, really just flipped on its head. People it's don't value music head. anymore. They think it's free. Oh, it's just you get it on the internet. It's free, right? Like, sure, you can get, you know, the Eagles on the internet for free. <laughs> you want really good music? Yeah, you know, what are you? What else are you gonna get? I hear some of the new stuff that's coming out. The only stuff that I like that came out in the recent few years, I think, is Billie Eilish. Mm -hmm. I really like the stuff that her and her brother do. Yeah. What, and then what, there's some other stuff that I hear every once in a while that's pretty good. But again, it's so few and far between, and there's there's no central place to, to, to really... Like, you can't go to your favorite record label and hear cool stuff. Like, you used to go to Ninja Tune and know there was going to be cool stuff. Yeah. You know, there really isn't that anymore. So what, what would be the, 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 the changes that would need to be made in order for artists to really get paid properly like in the old days or, or is, this just, is it just never gonna happen again? Well, you gotta get rid of the people that do, what is that thing? I don't even use it. Where they, that me, online, the music service or whatever it is, I forget what it's called. Oh, the one, the one that there was a whole big lawsuit about um, uh, some years ago. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, not Napster. Napster's oh, fine. Okay. No, they were fine. Everybody that bought my that downloaded the stuff on Napster ended up buying twelve albums anyway. But okay, wasn't that? It's the streaming services that are not paying musicians that are actually keeping the money. They're splitting it with the labels. They're keeping the money and not paying the musicians. That's why the guy who who runs. What's the name of that? Spotify. Spotify. So the guy who owns the Spotify, he's got some 12 room mansion. Like, well, dude, why don't you build each one of us our own like two room mansion? <laughs> then you can have your 12 room mansion on nobody who care. Or maybe we'll do a timeshare. Like all the musicians that you ripped off get a free week at your mansion. The like, guy who paid Joe Rogan a hundred million dollars to be exclusive, his podcast exclusively on Spotify. Right. Million Take that hundred million dollars. Give it to all the musicians you ripped off. At least we'll have a couple grand in our pocket. And, you know, like just guys like that. I mean, God bless them. I love entrepreneurism, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, you know, America business. Yay. Hooray. But um, don't rip off musicians, man. <laughs> we got very little as it is. And the know? thing is, is that without musicians, there is no music. No. And th those guys, you know, and it's not just him. There's a ton of people out there that do this. And a lot of guys that do the li libraries, 
they, they'll graduate from Yale or Harvard and they'll go into business and these guys are sharks. Yeah, I mean, they go in knowing that people. Huh? they're not artists, they're business. No, people. they're business people. Yeah. And they go in and they know that artists don't, they are like a lot of them aren't hip to the difference between publicity and a publisher. Right. You know? Right. So, and they don't know what they do and what, what the difference between mechanical royalties are, mm. you know, and, you know, intellectual property. They don't know what that is. They don't know, you know, who gets writer share, what publisher shares for, like, they don't know any of that stuff. Right. So, so, so they take advantage of that. Mm. And then they, like a lot of times they'll even make copies. They'll be like, you know what? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take your song and we'll make a copy of it and we'll title it something different. Like we'll call it, okay, your song is called Fudge and this song is called Fudge 2. It's a completely different song with completely different writers on it and we'll put ourselves in on writers. That way your music doesn't get attached and you have your original music and that like, yeah, but that's like selling a Gucci bag at the same price as the a knockoff as, as the original mm -hmm. and then not paying the guy who has the original Gucci bag. That's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's what these guys do. They rip off musicians, these people at libraries. So I don't like library people. So even though so, I'm doing a bunch of library stuff with Goody now because he wants to do it, whatever. Well, so so for for your students at Musicians Institute, yeah. Do do you or does somebody teach them some business acumen? So yeah, there's a new program there that started up a couple of years back called the Independent Artist Program. And they're required to take music business classes. And so the musicians that are coming up now are a little more savvy than they have been in the past few years because they're not just studying skills or how to play like Ingve, They're actually learning how to survive in the music business. That's my job at MI is teaching artist development, how, teaching people how to actually make a living mm -hmm. in the music industry, not necessarily how to be a rock star because right. I could teach you how to play. I could teach you how to write songs, I could teach you how to cope and live in, in that environment, but being a rock star, that's on you, that's really. Right. Oh, I mean, I can teach you Keith Richards, Mike. Right, Keith Richards, you know, you're no guy named Mick, really. It's how you're gonna do is just, you know, kiss up to that guy named Mick. And he's, he Actually, was, if you could teach him to be Mick, then he went to He play. went to like business school and he's a brilliant guy. And you know, if he longs you yeah. get, and he likes the blues, as long as you like the blues, you're fine. Two guitar players, and a good drummer, that's all you need. <laughs> just teach them, just do a class on how to be Mick and they'll be totally fine. Right, he yeah. Was the guy. You know who does a good Mick is Fuzzby. Fuzzby does a good Mick. Uh, London School of Economics, mate. London School of Economics, yeah, yeah, I can't do it. I gotta get the arms akimbo and the neck going gotta, like this. And, you gotta yeah. get your rooster on, mate. Yeah, see that, you got it, yeah. That's good, no, well, I love, I love I'm a big, huge Stones fan. You know, I was a late bloomer with the Stones because uh, I was just, my dad didn't have any Stones records and my mom only had Beatles records. So I didn't get any Stones when I was a kid, except what was on the radio. It wasn't until after I was in the beat and I found out that my buddy Linval from the specials had learned a lot of his guitar chops from Keith Richards that I was like, oh, so I'm key. And then I'm like, oh, Keith, Jamaica, the, the way he Expensive plays the guitar with the five strings. I'm like, there's a whole big tie in there. And I'm just like, and he, they, I think he still has place down in Jamaica. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so like it just, uh, that's when I started getting into the Stones when, you know, a bunch of the people from the, the fans of the beat would start bringing me records. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we'd be on tour and we'd have a night off, we'd go and we'd play records for each other. And 
And, it, you know, just I had this one guy who was a huge Stones fan and he's just always just throwing Stones stuff at me. I'm like, okay, cool. And so I, you know, now I have a permanent hard on for Keith Richards and that's. Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> the great, he's the great old, the great soul, the great soul of. Right. Yeah. Things. Right. I, I promise I will never try and keep up with him <laughs> in a bar room. I swear. Well, He's probably, probably going to live longer than all of us. I know exactly. You know, your lip, your 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 lips to God's ears, sure, right? Absolutely. Well, when we're kind of taking an informal poll as to who will kick first, Keith or Mick, and and well, Mick already, possible. Mick already went. Well, see, oh, they but they both have had brushes. Mick just got out of heart surgery. Yes. And Keith bonked his head. Right. And he had to stop, you know, all of his shenanigans. Well, he was very clear in his book life of course mm -hmm. as you know that he did not actually fall out of a tree the tree actually broke and and he and fell, he fell. So it's yeah like, he didn't he fall out of the tree, of the tree. he hung <laughs> on to the tree it was the tree's fault entirely so i, I have it wasn't to for that damn weak tree <laughs> right it wouldn't for those bloody coconuts hey, um, <laughs> we need better coconut trees on the property <laughs> <laughs> Make it so. We've got we've got dueling. We don't need any weak coconut cheese in the company. We've got dueling Nick and Keefs going on. You know they're both really well read. They're both like very intellectual. Yeah. yeah okay. Just FYI. Really great. Um, yeah. And and I found this out in you know in passing that they weren't really the bad boys that everybody says right. they were thinks they were. They were just. That was their image, right? Because the Beatles were the good guys, but the Beatles were actually the street toughs, and the street kids that were, you know, like Lennon, you know, scrappers, Liverpoolians, you know, right, Liverpoolians, you know, bastards, and uh, and Mickey <laughs> Keith were like the art school and economic school, kids. yeah. So yeah, yeah. But there you go. That's why <laughs> Mick's a genius. I'm sorry, he is absolute oh, genius. Mick absolutely. is a total genius. He is, and and he's made. He's also he's kept the whole thing going for so long. God oh, bless him. And then plus his own, you know, his acting and all that, you know. You oh, know, I know, it's so cool. I love when he does everything. that stuff. Does everything. You know, my friend. Do you know Paul Boyd? Paul Boyd uh, uh, works for Dave Stewart, mm. and oh, they yeah. did they did a, a super heavy video. It was really cool. He could tell me all these stories about making the Marleys and everybody in super heavy. It was really cool. I love, I love the stories. That's the thing about music business. I love oh, all yeah. the stories. I think that's my favorite part about it. The touring is fun. Playing for people is great. I love writing and music and wandering the galaxy. I really love hearing, like sitting around with other musicians and, and just hearing the stories. Like on tour with Chuck Berry. I followed Chuck Berry around the country on one tour. And every night I would play on a, another Fender Dual Showman with big JBL 15s. I'm like, well, what's with these amps? And like, oh yeah, no, Chuck Berry was here last night. Like, our booking agent had booked us on tour the day after Chuck Berry, all over the country. And at the end of the tour, so like for the whole thing, I was playing on Chuck Berry's amps all over the country. He just shows up, drives up, pulls out his guitar, gets his cash, and if his cash is right, he walks to the stage. If the amp is there, he plugs in him, does his show, and then he leaves. Right? He doesn't bring his amp. They have to supply the amp. That's the whole thing with him. So at the end of the tour, we get to New Jersey and we're playing the policeman's ball in New Jersey. And I come downstairs from the hotel room 
And the lady at the reception goes, come here. I'm like, I walk over. She goes, who's that over there on the couch? And I look over and I go, oh my God, that's Chuck Berry. <laughs> so I run over to Chuck Berry and I go, Chuck, I've been playing your amps all over the country playing the day after you have with the same booking agent. So I just want to say thank you. And I'm so happy to meet you. And thank you for all the great music. And he grabs my arm and he goes, boom. And he elbows me right in the sternum here. Bam. He goes, yeah. Like, like, you know, thanks, man. That's really great. And, and like, but like, what the bruise? Total, like, mojoed me. Chuck Berry mojoed me. And then we go play the show. And it was great. And then after the show, uh, we get in, we had a show that afternoon in New Jersey. And so we had to drive through Manhattan. It was a policeman's ball. So we got escorted in police vans because it was their party. And they had the lights and everything like, ah, you guys, don't worry about it. We'll get to the airport on time, right? So we got up in the van, all the way through Manhattan. Everybody's like, shh, like parting like the Red Sea, you know? It's all the way to the airport. To, to, and then we fly in the airport and we played a gig at uh, the Belly Up in Solana Beach, like San Diego that yeah. night so afternoon i was playing in new jersey and that night i was playing in san diego wow and you finally got to to run into mr barry <laughs> mr chuck barry after the, the tour i know right it's crazy wow who is it was, was there somebody else who was a great hero of yours whom you got to meet through all this of uh i'm sure there are so many, many people the guys from the specials, I loved the specials when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Dolby, got to play a show with Thomas Dolby. Um, God, all the reggae people that we played with, you know, the uh, Mad Scientist and the Black Uhuru guys and the Whalers. I became an honorary whaler. Oh. That was cool. <laughs> Yaman, you're honorary whaler. A plaque, oh, okay. a plaque or, or a joint. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, that's a story and a half. Oh my God. We, we were playing reggae in the park, Golden Gate Park, San Francisco, huh? and with the English beat. And uh, uh, we get off stage, we play our set, brilliant set, excellent, 30,000 people, gorgeous day. Mm -hmm. San Francisco, Golden what Gate year? Park. Oh gosh, it's early 2000s. I'm oh, not I sure what year it was. Damn it. So, so it was I'm early 2000s. There. And anyway, so, we get off the stage, I saw my guitar around my neck and I walk off stage and I'm drinking a beer and the promoter grabs me by my shirt and goes, hey, come here, you play guitar, right? I'm, I have one on. I'm like, what gave it away, man? <laughs> he goes, I need you to go on stage. I'm like, what? Yeah, the Whalers got pulled over by the cops and I need you to go on stage and entertain them until the Whalers get here. I'm like, okay, you know. So I walk up on stage, 30,000 people. I go, hi, I'm Rick. Uh, I was in the band you just saw. I was a guitar player. Um, I have some bad news for you. I go, unfortunately, the headliner for today, the Whalers, they were on their way, but they got pulled over. The Whalers got pulled over. This was before marijuana was legal, by the way. You could have a card and be like, oh, look, Yama, no, my doctor said it's okay. No, look, no glaucoma. <laughs> <laughs> right i'm not stressed at all uh but uh this was before all that so every you could hear the crowd the whole thirty thousand people just go i go yeah the wheelers got pulled over by the long arm of johnny law and they're like oh <laughs> P 
pizza got him. Oh no, pizza got him. Oh, pizza got him. You know, that kind of a vibe, right? So I go, but I'm here to perform for you some impromptu improvisational reggae, and I want you to help me out. Uh, so without any further ado, I started skanking along, playing stuff and little riffs, and and uh, and then I look over to the side of the stage, and there's a drummer waving his sticks, and I'm like get up here and so he comes up from one of the other bands and starts playing and then like a bass player for another band i'm like get up here and he comes and starts playing recently we have the whole band going and we're jamming and just freestyling stuff and then this other guy's <laughs> rapper comes out he's uh like this uh what was rocky dewoni was his name rocky dewoni amazing amazing rapper and brilliant toaster you know like like toaster style right i think he's from south africa or something but he's awesome rocky doing he came out and started just raging the crowd up was pumping them up and we're like and like by the end of the 20 minutes or whatever we had the whole crowd going hey ho hey and none of the other bands for their whole day had ever done that so that was cool because i had to, i asked them to be a part of what we were doing i go now you're part of this band like we're just gonna do this and we're gonna rock out until the whalers get here Anyway, so the whalers finally show up. The cops let him go. And the whalers like, yeah, man. Blessings. You know, I and I, you honorary whaler. <laughs> and it had to be a joint. Like, okay, that was the one time I'd smoked a joint on that whole tour. Like, when whaler hands you a joint, you yeah. smoke the joint. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's how I became an honorary whaler. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's cool. And, and it must be said, whaler, not not W-H-A-L-E-R, but whaler. Yeah, as Bob, in Bob Marley and the whalers. Yeah, they, there's, there's apparently, that's a whole other subterfuge, like that whole thing. There's, you know, there's the original whalers, there's the the new original whalers, you know, like it's a spinal tap thing. Like there's a whole bunch yeah. of different versions of them. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, an out. I bought a guitar from Al Anderson here at uh, Guitar Center. Mm. He was trying to sell one in the back room and I just happened to have a little extra mad money. And I'm like, are you selling that 335? He's like, yeah, but they won't give me what I want for it. it Al is not Jamaican. He looks really Jamaican. Uh -huh. yeah, and that's why Chris Black will put him in the band. He took him out of uh, uh, Steve Winwood's band uh -huh. and pulled him out and put him into uh, uh, the Whalers uh -huh. when I think Peter Tosh quit. So, because um, they like him and Bob were like brothers and like mm -hmm. they're like his dad dated her mom or his his mom or whatever. It's one mm -hmm. of those things. Anyway, so Al Anderson uh, gets the gig because he looks the part. Right. You talk to him and he sounds like one of the guys in Kiss or something because he's got this New Jersey accent. <laughs> you know, he he, he sounds he. He sounds like Christopher Walken or something, and he looks <laughs> like Bob Marley. It's really real off-putting, but um, he's a sweetheart, and uh, so I bought a guitar from him. Wow! Yeah. And he wasn't in—I don't think he was in the Whalers that I rescued mm, on okay. stage that one day, or like we bookmarked anyway so on stage. Speaking, speaking of the Guitar Center, is—is is the rumor true that it is in fact going to close, or have you heard anything about that? Well, they. I was really worried when Bain Capital bought them, mm -hmm. which is Mitt Romney's company that puts companies like that out of business mm -hmm. and then vacuums up all their assets. That's what they're known for doing. Um, so I don't know. I wouldn't, I, you know, 
I'm very, very grateful to the Guitar Center people because they watched our backs all over the country. Every time we had a problem, we, I had a I had a ten thousand dollar net pay account with them as as English Beats manager because I was their manager for a tour. I let Linval from the Specials play guitar, and then Dave didn't want to lose me, so he made me the manager, the road manager for a tour. Uh, and uh, so I got this ten thousand dollar net pay thing. Anytime something happened, we we'd have money to buy stuff, right? And um, so they've been looking out for like we lost our gear, got shipped to the wrong place one time, and we all went and bought gear. Yeah. And then we, we all got they let us return it all, which is really cool. Uh, so that was really neat. Um, but Guitar Center, you know, I think they're just going through some tough times. There's not a lot of people making, it's not like the big pie in the sky dream anymore to become a rock star because there's yeah. no money there. Everybody's, the money's all being stolen by these people from Spotify and places right. like that and the libraries and whatnot. Again, back to the, back to the, what we were right. talking about before about how the industry has changed so much. Um, and, oh, I, and I did want to mention, uh, tell me about Dirty Cakes. Dirty Cakes! Dirty Cakes! Dirty, dirty Cakes is fun. That, that's my, my guilty pleasure. You know, like I was always in like these sort of like post-punk sort of Echo and the Bunnymen, uh -huh. like uh, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, Vox and the Charlie Horses, I think was the name of the band. Uh, bands. Uh, and I was never really in a full-on rock band. Like, and I always wanted to be like in a fucking punk rock band because I always loved punk rock, right? Mm -hmm. I never I was always a singer and then I was a guitar player and like I just never never got the, to like get scratch that itch I suppose so I met this guy Charlie through some mutual friends and uh you know I just started I help, started helping him out with his band and then like his drummer quit and his bass player became his drummer and he like needed a bass player so I started playing bass mm -hmm. and then I started writing songs with him and we've just been writing songs and making records ever since we just did some stuff out uh, Rancho de la Luna with Dave Ketching from uh, the guys from the Queens of the Stone Age and those 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 cats right that whole desert scene because because uh, uh, Charlie really wanted to do that because he's a huge fan of Queens of the Stone Age and I'm like I think I know somebody we can get in there and so we made some phone calls and we ended up uh, working our way into that studio and just paid to have them uh, record our, our, our record. So I've got a record, it's in the can, we're almost ready to go. Charlie doesn't want to release it. He doesn't want to release it as a record. He wants to, he's like, oh, it's just like a little bit here and a little bit there. That way we maximize, he's a, he's a marketing guy. I'm like, okay, right, right. you be the marketing guy. I just want to put out the record and tour. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, we got to do the marketing here, marketing there, a little bit there and do this radio thing. I'm like, you, do, do you, 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 you market you, you go ahead. So that's what he's doing now. He's doing all his marketing jazz. So did, um, you, did you think, did you have any inkling when you were a kid playing your music and hanging out with your family and, and, and all that, did you have any, did you have an inkling that you would be able to be successful at, at, at being? Oh, I knew it immediately. The first time I heard Led Zeppelin that that's what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to do that. And that's all I want to do. I just remember being like, I'm not going to be a marine biologist anymore. Not going to be an actor. That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to play guitar. I want to be able to play guitar and have people go, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> the fact that you've been able to do it, do you, do you think it has something to do with the fact that like you just knew the what so that the hows took care of themselves? 
They didn't take care of themselves. I had a, you create well, you your did. own destiny in a lot you, of ways. You create while well, you created it. You recognize the opportunities. You have to recognize yeah. the opportunities, and when the opportunities present themselves, you have to be ready and capable to right. fulfill all the things that you said you could do. Like right. you have to be like better than everybody else on the planet, and have better songs, and right. be able to do it. Right. You know, and not and not just be like, you know, narcissistic. Hi, I'm special because I'm special guy. Right. Of course. You, know, you have to actually like know how to play your instrument and actually know how to talk to people and know how to do business with people. Right. You know, I mean it's like opportunities happen every freaking day. Every time every freaking day. They do. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you recognize them is one thing. That's whether or not you can actually fulfill the, the requirements needed to for that to be successful is another thing as well. Mm -hmm recognizing it and also having and being prepared yeah like said, with your a lot of people that, a lot of people get opportunities and they're just not prepared so when they when they put their shot out there it's not good mm -hmm. you know so really I'm, I'm i'm blessed to have been surrounded by a lot of people uh who were just amazing like literally and i i strove to surround myself with people who were better at what I like to do than me. And, uh, and I just, just try to stay in that zone and uh, make my bosses look good and bring stuff in on time and under budget <laughs> and do Creating the best value. job and try and do a better job than anybody else. Right. That's the idea. Right. Like if you can do a better job than anybody, make your boss look good. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the ticket, mm -hmm. you know, bringing value. Yeah, exactly. And, and the whole Rockstar gig, that was like a really hard job. Yeah. You know, that was really, that was like being in the military. That's a really demanding gig. I mean, you're on 24 hours a day. You have to constantly be thinking about business and like, it's a real cerebral thing. Unless you have some like Godhead manager who's looking after you, you really have to sort of keep your, your uh, wits about you. Yeah, and you got to keep yourself. And you must walk your spiritual path with practical feet. <laughs> wow. Well, that's. I think that's great advice. So, if there are any youngins listening? Then, then this is excellent. Oh yes, must walk your spiritual path with practical feet. <laughs> Guru Ricardo says so. Yes. Oh, <laughs> thank, you. thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome. This was great. Thank this you. is good enough. It's good. And it's good thank enough. you so much for joining me for that epic chat with Rick Torres. Thank you so much, Rick, for your time today. It was so much fun to chat with you. And to all of my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Also, special treat for you. Uh, you will be hearing the Supreme Beings of Leisure Never the Same track to follow in just a few seconds. Take good care of each other, take good care of yourselves, and as always, I will see you on the other side. Here's Supreme Beings of Leisure.
Now 